Okay, we are uh, continuing our introductory lessons into the book of Genesis. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we uh, we did our, our our introduction and looked at a number of things uh, about Genesis and about its uh, authorship and other things that were important for us to think about, its themes and and uh, those kind of things. And then uh, last week we talked a little bit. Or then the next week, or excuse me, the first week, and then we also talked that first week about Genesis 1, verse 1. Uh, and then the last week we talked about, uh, actually, we only talked about uh, the first day of creation down through about verse 5, is all the further we got. We did talk quite a bit about the relationship between verse 1 and verse 2 and some other questions that come up in this passage. Uh, and today, I'd like to pick it up <coughs> with verse 6 and. And I would like to, uh, Lord willing, and see how much time we have. There's just a lot of different things to talk about here. So we'll see how far we get. But I would like to try to get all the way through the first part of day six today. Okay. So in other words, we'll pick it up with day two. We'll talk a little bit about day one again and pick it up with day two. And I'd like to get down through uh, the first part of day six up to the creation of man. Okay. So let's just begin reading in verse 1 and we'll read down through uh, verse 25 uh, and then uh, we'll review a little bit and we'll go on from there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light that <clears throat> saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below from the uh, uh, which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, "Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear." And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters He called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with their seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. 
God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then he picks up and goes on with the creation of man. We'll stop at that point. I'm sure if we get that far, we'll be doing great. (laughs) So, uh, let's go back and just think a little bit. Last week, uh, we picked it up there in verse 2. Uh, and uh, what do you remember that we talked about last week? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, that's that's really encouraging to note that you know, presumably God could have just said you know everything be and everything would have been and it would all happen instantaneously, but for some reason God didn't do that. And and what that tells me is that God values the process. God po- values the progress from step one to step two to step three. And there may be various reasons for that. Uh, And I I don't know what they are, but I think it's pretty clear that God chose to do that for that reason or or uh, do it in that way for reasons uh, that are important to him, that he values that. And that that at, at, at various stages along the way, he stops and he looks at it and he goes, that's cool. (laughs) That's good, you know. And and. And so even though the creation isn't complete, each stage along the way, God looks at it and he recognizes the value and the the goodness of each individual step uh, along this road of getting to this ultimate objective that he has, which is to create an environment and a place that is suitable, of course, for humankind, the ultimate object of this whole creation. And... And the application of that that we talked about last week is that in our own lives, I think that's true too. That God values the process. God values the progress. And He could, obviously, the moment we're converted, just instantly transform us and make us just perfect saints. And But He doesn't do that. And He could do that, but He doesn't do that. And I think it's because there's something about God that values the process. And He values each step along the way. And each step along the way is a good step. And if he takes delight in those steps along the way, we ought to too. So, what else?
thought you talked about a definite beginning. And, uh, I was reading some stuff this week. I was looking for things on the actually Jewish calendar, but it got back into some creation theories of the older Jews, and it was interesting. But they noted that there's a difference in the numbering here. That it starts out, it says day one. Then afterward, it starts second, third. And it doesn't say first day. It says day one. And they made a significant thing out of that. That's a starting point. Huh. It wasn't the first day, it was start, and then the second and third, huh. which I thought was kind of interesting. And then, I don't know if you got into the evening and morning, whether there were 24-hour days. We did talk about that a little yeah. bit, yeah. That, <laughs> it was interesting there. They brought in the concept that the evening and morning, the root words, the evening came, it means the word chaos, or breakdown, and then morning comes back to the order. And they're saying it doesn't, and these, you know, these weren't liberals, these were fairly conservative. They said it doesn't necessarily mean that evening and mornings, so we don't have the sun and moon mm-hmm. for a while anyway, mm-hmm. but it meant it, it's meant to mean chaos to order, chaos to order, chaos to order, mm-hmm. which means it's the opposite of the laws of thermodynamics, which means mm-hmm. order breaks down. Yeah. So it's showing that God is reversed, you know, in the beginning, He reversed yeah. the process yeah. and brought order out of chaos. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be talking more about that too, but that's very clearly what He's doing because He starts. On, on day one, he has he has uh, he creates the heavens and the earth, and then we see there at the beginning of verse two that the earth is formless and void, and we're going to talk more about that today. The earth is formless and void, and then he's moving, uh, as as uh, Mike points out, he's moving really in the opposite direction of the laws of thermodynamics. He's moving from that formless and void to this tremendous order and beauty and and everything, and it's uh, it's just a marvelous process that's going on there. Anything else? Well, I wasn't here, but it just strikes me as you were reading through all this that God could have, you know, the universe is fairly large. Fairly. (laughs) He could have really started just about anywhere and given it in any order and any method, but it's very earth-centric. Yes. As I was noticing as you were reading through this. Yeah. It's all about what happens on the earth and how everything relates to the earth. Yes. Uh, and that is an important thing to note that that the account itself is very earth-centric. It's centered on the earth and that's not to say that God wasn't doing things in other parts of the universe, but for the purposes of of Genesis, for the purposes that the writer has set forth, the reason he's writing Genesis, the reason he's writing the Pentateuch, the reason he's writing Genesis, and the reason he's writing the creation account is uh, uh, dictates that that everything be looked at from the perspective of the earth. Okay, and so it is very earth-centric. It's very focused on what's going on in the earth, and he really doesn't tell us much about what's going on in the rest of this. Uh, Fairly big universe, as you refer to it. <laughs> so, what else? Do you want to get into the Greek theories that you came up with? Uh, we did talk about, uh, yeah, we talked about uh, the question of the relationship of verse 1 to verse 2, okay? And we talked about uh, the, pardon? Yes, right. So there are actually uh, there are probably three primary ways of viewing the relationship of verse one to the verses that follow, verse two and the verses that follow, and and uh, the first uh, uh, the first idea is that verse that is that there's a, some significant gap of billions of years between verse one and verse two. Okay, so there was initially a creation of the heavens and the earth, and then there's this large gap. And we talked about this in detail last week, so I don't want to go into it in depth today. But there's this large gap, and then 
the then the kind of the recreation uh, idea of the earth uh, takes place beginning in verse two. Okay, that's one view. The second view is that verse one is just kind of a summary step statement or a or a heading, if you will, which describes is just kind of an overview statement. Uh, that describes everything else that's going to follow beginning in verse 2. So that verse 1 is really just a, 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 a general statement uh, to which verses 2 and down through into chapter 2 uh, give the details. Okay? And then the third view, and, and this is, as I explained last week, is the view that I hold to, is that verse 1 is simply the first act in day one of creation. Okay, so that verse, verse 1 and 2 are just directly tied together and linked together. There's no gap. It's not a summary statement. It is just simply uh, the first act of creation that God created the heavens and the earth. That's the view I hold to, and I explained all that last week why I hold to that view. And I also allowed that there are devout believers that hold to various views, and, and there may, you may have different views uh, here in the class as well, some of you, and that's fine. We can fight that out on another day and another place. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> So there are different ways to view that. We also talked about the question of the days and that there is a, there, the question is whether or not the days in Genesis 1 are uh, 24-hour periods or whether or not uh, they are long eons or epics. Uh, we talked about that again at some length last week. Uh, I believe they represent 24-hour days. You may or may not, but I pointed out the problems, the difficulties that are encountered uh, both grammatically and practically by viewing the days as longer, uh, as these long eons or epics of thousands or, or even millions of years. Okay, And we talked about that last week, so we won't go into it <coughs> again today. So, so those are some of the things we talked about. Well... Um, I'd like to pick up then uh, kind of with where we left off. I want, I want to do a couple of things by way of just reminder. There's some things we just really need to keep in mind as we're studying Genesis and particularly as we're studying uh, the creation account is we need to remember why we have the creation accounts. We need to remember why we have the book of Genesis and why we have the creation account. Who wrote Genesis? Who do we believe wrote Genesis? Or at least most of them. Pardon? Okay, Moses, okay. So if Moses wrote Genesis, then when was it written? We, we, that would give us some of a, somewhat of a window, wouldn't it? We could expect that it was written when? Okay, uh, uh, as far as general, you know, in relationship to the calendar, but more specifically, when would Moses have written the book of Genesis? You mean in his life? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, presumably, it's sometime between the Exodus and and uh, his death, right before the entrance into the Israel's entrance into the Canaan land. So somewhere in that forty-year period of time, uh, presumably, it's kind of doubtful to me that he would have written it before his encounter with the burning bush. So presumably, it's written somewhere in that forty-year period of time when Israel's wandering around out in the wilderness, right? Okay. And that's important because, because virtually all the books in the Bible and the letters and various things that we have in the Bible are, are written with a certain audience in mind. Okay, When Paul writes the First and Second Timothy, he has a specific audience in mind, i.e. the individual Timothy. When he writes the book of Corinthians, he has 
the Corinthians in mind. Ronnie's been preaching on the letters to the seven churches. And one of the, you know, one of the things he makes clear as he's been preaching on those various letters to the churches is, is he talks about the people and the church to which they've been written and the characteristics of those churches. And it's important to understand that in order to understand the letter, okay? And, and that's true with, with, uh, with uh, all of the books and all the passages of Scripture that uh, some of them we, we know clearly who they're written for, or who they were, the intended audience was. Others we don't know. But it really helps us to understand a passage if we understand that. And we understand that when Moses sat down and wrote the Pentateuch, obviously he put a great deal of effort into it and took a great deal of time, including the book of Genesis. One of the things he was doing was he was equipping the children of Israel following their exodus from Egypt in preparation for their moving into the promised land and setting up their whole system and, and, and uh, their whole future uh, in the promised land as the people of God and, and uh, as, uh, as part of the covenant, uh, covenant people of God. And, and so the whole Pentateuch is written with that, with that purpose in mind. Okay? And so is, the, so is the Genesis account. Okay? And so is the creation account. These things are written with the people of Israel in mind where they're coming from and where they're going to. Okay? So it's important for us to keep this in mind that, that and we've talked about this already in our introduction, that one of the things that, that one of the uh, ideas that, that pervades, that goes through the Pentateuch and particularly goes through Genesis, is this idea of the kingdom of God. And we talked about the four aspects of a kingdom that you had to have a uh, you had to have a people and a place and a rule and rules and a ruler. Okay, those four things. And we talked about that Genesis focuses on those on the first two of those, both a people and a place or a people and a land. Okay, so the idea of Genesis is cultivating this idea of a special people and a special land. Okay, uh, in reference to the kingdom of God. Okay, and so at the beginning he sets out and he describes to us God's creation of this initial beautiful paradise. Okay, which is the kingdom of God. God is ruling. His rules are established. He creates this beautiful world and then he creates this uh, humankind or mankind to live in this world. It's this whole idea of the kingdom of God. Okay, so this whole idea of God creating the land or making a place that's suitable for people to live, that's important to the children of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. Right. Because where are they headed? Okay, they're headed to the promised land, okay? And they actually kind of make one pass at it, you know, after they've been out there for a couple of years. And what happens the first time they come up to the promised land? Okay, and, and they chickened out, right? They bailed out. Why did they bail out? Ultimately. Fear. Fear of what? Okay, what are you going to say, Rick? Okay, unbelief in what? That God prepared a land. Unbelief that God had prepared a land and made a place for them. So this whole idea of, of God, that, that our God, Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, this is a God who prepares a place for His people. 
is foundational for Israel being ready to do what God's calling them to do, which is to move into the promised land and to take this promised land that He has promised to them and He's prepared it for them and it's ready for them and they chicken out because they don't believe that their God is the God of creation. Now, theologically they believe it, but they're not ready to accept the implications of that. That if our God could create the heavens and the earth, He can make a way for us in this land that seems like it's so impossible for us to take. The applications in our own lives are pretty obvious, isn't it? How oftentimes in our own lives do we hesitate to, to follow the Lord, to do what God asks because we're afraid He's not going to provide for us. So the lesson of creation is absolutely important to us as believers to understand that our God is a provider, that He makes a place. And that anything He that anything that any of His purposes for us that He calls us to do, He provides all the wherewithal and all the resource we need to do that. And that's one of the lessons that we get in creation, and that's a lesson that begins to come out in this passage. Um, Another thing that's important for us to understand in his purpose in giving us the creation account is the creation account is a polemic. Does anybody know what a polemic is? A polemic is an argument. Okay. So the creation account is is a polemic against the false gods. And you see that as you go down through the passage. How many times does it say, God said, and, 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 that's, and, and, and that's an expression of the decree of God. God spoke, let there be light, etc. Okay. So many times down through this account that we've just read, it says, God said. And then a few of its verses later, and so he, he said, let there be such and such, or let the, there be a separation. And then a few verses later, oftentimes, he follows it by saying, now God did this. God made this separation. Okay, So, for example, in verse 14 it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day and the night, etc. Then notice you go down to verse 16. It says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. Now that pattern is repeated several times through this account. In other words, what I'm saying is that as the writer of, of, of this uh, creation account is, is detailing for us what happens. He tells us first, God said, God declared. He gives us the decree of God that such and such be created. And then he describes what it is that God decreed. And then he kind of adds his, his, uh, his authorial uh, explanation, his kind of explanation or emphasis that he as, as the author of the passage wants to add, which is God made this. Okay? And the and the point that the point that that he's making is as he's writing this for the children of Israel, he's saying, God said, let there be such and such. And then he says, God made such and such. The point is, God made all this stuff, folks. Think about it. God said, let there be, and then God made that. And what he's doing is he's he's just laying this emphasis on the fact that God created all this stuff. And the reason that this is important 
You remember uh, much later in the story when you get uh, into when the the, the uh, Israelites get into the Promised Land and they've been in the Promised Land for many years. Joshua has been their leader, and you get to the end of Joshua, the end of the book of Joshua, and and Joshua puts out this challenge in Joshua 24 to the children of Israel, and he says, "Now you people, you need to serve the Lord." And you need to put away... This is after they've been in the Promised Land for a long time. This is Joshua 24, about verse 14 or so. You need to put away the gods that your fathers brought out of the land of Egypt and served on the other side of the river, meaning before they crossed the Jordan River. And the point is, is that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they brought the Egyptian gods with them. And Joshua says... You need to put that away and serve the Lord. And then he says in verse 15, he says, And if it seem evil for you to serve the Lord, then choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the gods which your father served on the other side of the river? Or are you going to serve the gods of the people in whose land you dwell? But you choose. You make up your decision today, here and now. Who are you going to serve? Okay. The point being is that the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, were immersed in all this idolatry and pagan worship. And when they came out of Egypt, they brought much of that with them. Now they've been out in the wilderness for many years and and the Lord's disciplined them and purged them, but there's still there's a lot of that idolatry going on until they get to the, you know, until all those old folks die off, okay? Because that's why he refers to the ones your fathers brought and the ones your fathers served. And so now they come into the, into, the, into the promised land. But when they come into the promised land, they're surrounded by what? A bunch more pagan deities and pagan systems of worship. And the point of Genesis and the point of the creation account is to establish clearly in the minds of the children of Israel who is God. Yahweh Elohim, He is God. He is the one who made all this stuff. And so the sun is not a God, and the moon is not a God, and the stars are not gods, and, the, and Mother Earth is not your God. All these other things that the, that the pagans of the world worship, they are in fact created. They are not gods. They are created. And the point is, that Genesis 1, uh, particularly in Genesis 2 to a lesser degree, but Genesis 1 is a polemic against idolatry. It's an argument against idolatry. It's establishing who is the true and living God. And that's why the Genesis account of creation is so vital. Not only to the children of Israel in the wilderness, but to you and I here in America today. Were you going to say something, Deirdre? Yeah, I was going to say one of the things that we see in education is an all-out attack to discredit this part of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Because they know if they can discredit this from the lives of children, then everything else falls. Then they can set up whatever gods they want. That's why it's an all-out attack on creation. And that's why it is so important that whatever we do with Genesis 1, that we not allow it to be diluted or diminished. Now, I'm not suggesting that all the difficult questions about Genesis 1 have been answered. There, we'll look at one here in a few minutes. It's a very difficult question, and I'm not uh, confident that I have a satisfactory answer on it. Okay? So not all the difficult answers about Genesis 1 have been answered. 
but it is imperative, I think, that we understand how crucial this passage is. It is the basis of everything else. It is the basis of everything else. And when we dilute or when we diminish what Genesis 1 is telling us, we open ourselves up to idolatry. Whether that idolatry is materialistic naturalism, whether it's the worship of Mother Earth, whether it's astrology, whatever it is, we are opened up to the influence of idolatry in our lives. We wouldn't call it idolatry, of course. We think of it as we're sophisticated now and we don't think that you know, when we are... Uh, you know, when we buy into the whole materialistic naturalism that we are in fact worshiping an idol, but we are worshiping an idol. We are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And that's the importance of Genesis chapter 1. Okay, well, I don't want to go into detail uh, and and talk in detail about each day and each item of creation because I want to see some general patterns uh, and some general issues. But let's look at, just briefly, let's look at these six days then. And then, and then go back and find out what are the lessons that we can learn from them. On day one, we had what? Light. Okay. And what did he do with the light? Separated it from the darkness. Okay. And if you're... And if you're like me and you believe that verse 1 is, uh, is a part of, of uh, day 1, uh, then you would also say that God created the heavens and the earth on day 1. Okay. If you're a gap theorist or whatever, you may not view that that way. But that's how I view it and for the reasons I explained last week. Okay. So on day 1, God created, I believe, the heavens and the earth. And then He created light. And we talked a bit about that last week. Uh, and then He separated the light from the darkness. And He called the darkness night and he called the day light, okay? Then on day two, God created this expanse, what it refers to as the expanse, and God called it the heaven. Now you have to remember that in the Hebrew scriptures you have you have kind of three levels of heaven. Okay? They have three heavens. And so you have the first heaven which is just kind of the sky and the air around us, okay? And then you have the the, the second heaven which is the stars and you know up there where all the constellations and all that is. And then you have heaven, the abode of God, okay, where God's throne is, okay? And Scripture uses heaven in those three different ways, particularly in the Old Testament, okay? Well, uh, which is why, incidentally, Paul, when he has that, when he talks about that vision that he encountered, he says, I, I, I was carried away in the Spirit to the third heaven, okay? That's, I was carried to the place of the domain of God, okay? That, I, that idea is there, okay? It, it, it appears that what he's referring to here primarily in the creation of the expanse, what God calls the sky or the heaven, uh, is the creation of this, this lower first heaven, okay? So it's the sky. Okay, and he creates the sky, and he does it in part for what purpose? What's he trying to do? A separation between what? Okay, so basically he's putting some water up here, okay, above the earth, above the expanse, and then there's the expanse. And then there's the waters below, which is still this formless void, this this globe or whatever it was that's completely covered by water. Okay, and God's purpose in in 
in making this expanse is he wants a separation. He wants waters above and waters below. Okay, so roughly speaking, and uh, you know, some creationists think of, uh, talk about a canopy uh, that existed until the time of the flood. And I don't want to go into all that, uh, but but basically, what we're what we're talking in terms of here is the earth still covered with water, completely covered with water, and then this expanse or this sky or this atmosphere around the earth. And then, and then the waters, the clouds, and that sort of thing above the earth. Okay, that's the idea that's being conveyed there, and that's all he does on that day. And it's interesting that he doesn't say at the end of the day that it was good. One of my commentators, in a footnote at the bottom, says even God can't say Monday is good. <laughs> I don't think that's the issue. But it is interesting that twice on the, on the third day he says it's good. Because on the third day, he continues this idea of separation. What does he do? Okay, so he now, the waters that are, he's, he's got the waters separated below from the waters above with the firmament. Then he takes the waters that are below and he separates them from the dry land. Okay, so now the dry land appears. So you have the dry land and you have the seas and the rivers and the lakes and, and all that sort of thing. Okay. And then what does he do with the dry land? Okay. He just fills it with vegetation. <laughs> all kinds of vegetation. And this idea comes and begins to come in here of after their kind. And he starts stressing this idea of after their kind, after their kind. And that idea keeps coming up again and again. So he creates all this vegetation on the earth. So there's all the trees and the shrubs and the grasses and the, you know, everything that's involved in, in the vegetative world. Okay? So he creates all that on day three. Now I want you to notice, there's actually, some commentators have noticed that there's a pattern here. And that the creation account is really divided into two triads. The first three days and the last three days. Okay. And in these first three days, what we notice is, remember back in verse 2, it says that the earth was what? How was the word characterized in verse 2? Formless and void. Two things he says about it. It was formless and void. Okay. Now, we find that over the course of these first three days, what has God been doing with the earth? Well, he's been adding form. He hasn't really unvoided. Yeah, right. Basically, he's been adding the form. He's given the light. He's separated light from the darkness. He's put an atmosphere. He's separated the water from the dry land, etc. And he's giving form to the earth. Okay. Now we go to day four. And what does he do on day four? Okay. Uh, what? No, day four. This is an open book exam now. Come on. <laughs> Pardon? No, day four. The lights. Okay. Day one he created light. On day four... He does something that gives us lights. Okay? So now this heavens and earth that he created is now 
at least from our Earth's perspective, we now see all these lights. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, all that sort of stuff up there. Okay? We see all that stuff up there. Okay? So what was at one point just seemed to be kind of an empty expanse is now being filled with something. The void is being filled. Okay? And we'll come back to day four in a minute. On day five, what does he do? Okay? So he creates all the sea creatures, all the aquatic life, and he fills the waters. And sea monsters. And sea monsters, yeah. The whales and the giant squids and all that sort of stuff, you know. I, you know, I just wish I could have been there to watch the oceans just come to life. And you know what's exciting? That there is coming a point in time in which this heavens and this earth is going to melt away with a fervent heat and God is going to do what? Create a new heavens and a new earth. So we read about this stuff in Genesis 1 and we go, man, I wish I could have been there. Well, there's a good chance you will be when you see the new one. Anyway, okay, so he fills the oceans with teeming swarms of aquatic life. Okay. And then he fills the sky with all these birds. Isn't it awesome when you're out and you just see just you know, at times you just see masses of birds in the sky and sometimes the bird sky almost turns dark. But, you know, that's the picture you get. Just teeming swarms of fish and then all these birds in the sky. And what is God doing? On day one, He created light. On day four, He created lights. On day two, He created the firmament, the, the sky above the earth and the waters below. Okay? And, and on day... On day five, corresponding to that, he fills the waters below with fish and he fills the firmament with the birds. Okay. Then on day three, God makes the dry land. And on day six, what does he create? Pardon? Well, before mankind. Okay, all the beasts, you know, the cows, the cattle, he says the cattle and the creeping things and the beasts. And most commentators understand what he's talking about is the domesticatable animals, you know, the cows and the camels and the llamas and all that sort of thing. And, and then the creepy crawly things, you know, everything from the insects to the frogs to the snakes, you know, all the things that make us creep and crawl. And, and, and then, of course, the wild animals, the wild beasts, okay. So basically, all, all the land creatures are created on day six. And then he gets to man. Yeah. Does that also include the uh, uh, dinosaurs? Uh, I assume so, yes. I assume so, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you hear his question? He was asking if that included the dinosaurs, and I assume it did. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, later in day six, you know, in, in the afternoon, he gets around to creating man. Okay. <laughs> and we'll get into that next week. Okay. Well, what's interesting is that if you look at this whole creation account as these two triads, first three days, second three, first three days, second three days, okay, then, then what you see God doing throughout creation is he's taking this earth 
that is formless and void. And in the first three days, he's giving this earth form. And in the second three days, he's what? Filling it up. And at every stage along the way, he's saying, he stops and says, it's good. We talked about that last week. It's good. Why is it good? It's good for several reasons, but one reason it's good is because what God's objective is, is to create a place for mankind. And at each step along the way, each one of these things that God creates where he stops and he says it's good, the light, and then the separation of the waters from the dry land, and he says it's good, okay, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The idea is it's good because it's accomplishing God's purpose of making a place that's suitable for you and I to live. And that's good. And God likes it. Okay. Well, so, you know, we could take time. I'm not going to do that. But we could take time over the next few weeks and go back and look at every single day and talk about it in depth. And, and we're not going to do that. But, but I just want to see the overview here of what's happening. That God is moving to create a place. And, and, and a verse in the New Testament comes to my mind as I'm thinking about that. That, 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 that one of God's great concerns is, is having a place for His people. And that verse in John 14 comes to my mind, right? What does Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And so I look at Genesis and I look at what... God did in Genesis chapter 1, and then we'll see some more when we get into chapter 2, some more specifics about it. But as we look at this whole idea of God creating a place, then I have some greater sense and greater appreciation of what's going on right now. As my Savior is in heaven, and He's creating a place for me. It's going to be really cool, folks. It's going to be really cool. And when I look at this account and then I remember that He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, and I go, wow, that's going to be awesome. And, and I'm going to get to see that. I'm going to get to see that. And you know, people talk about it. I look in Genesis 1 here and, they, and because of the pressure, I think, of modern science and stuff, some people feel compelled to see billions of years and eons of years here. But I'm pretty sure that the new heavens and new earth are not going to take billions of years to get into place. I'll be surprised if he takes six days for it. Yeah. One of the reasons I don't believe he took more than a few days to do it in Genesis 1 is because I don't think he's going to take more than a few days to do it the second time around. It's going to be spectacular. And we're going to get to watch it. Well, let's just think about a couple other things then. Over and over and over again in this passage, you notice that as God is bringing order out of, we used the word last week, chaos. It's not a totally appropriate word, but I do kind of like it. As God is bringing order out of chaos, notice over and over again in this account, what is God doing? What does He do in, 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 on day one with the light after He creates it? What does He do? What does he do with the light after he creates it? Separates it from the darkness. Okay. The next day, 
He's got all the water. What does he do? He separates the waters below from the waters above. The next day, he has waters all over the earth. What does he do? Separates it from the dry land. And then about that time, we start picking up the whole idea of he creates everything to reproduce what? After what? It's kind. You see, all the way through, as God is bringing order out of chaos, one of the things God is doing is He's separating things. And He's dividing things. And He's distinguishing one thing from another. And He's saying, we don't cross these boundaries, folks. And ultimately, as we'll see next week, He gets to creating humankind and He creates them what? Male and female. You see, when God wants to create order out of chaos, what is necessary is that there be separations, that there be distinctions, that there be boundaries, that there be limitations. That is by definition what order is. And, and so we come to understand then how important God's distinctions are that He makes. Now, we err when we make distinctions God does not make. And when we create boundaries, God does not create. But we also err very seriously when we ignore the boundaries that God has made. Because any time that we diminish or ignore the boundaries and the separations and the distinctions that God makes, we are moving creation back to what? Chaos. That's why it's so important that we keep in mind that when God said that there's something over here and there's something over here and that's the way I want it, that we keep it that way. And that's why it's so important in, in, in our families where God draws distinctions between parents and children that we don't blur those distinctions and let children function as parents and let parents function as children, okay? That's why it's important that in, that in the marital relationship, a husband does what a husband's supposed to do and a wife does what a wife is supposed to do and functions in those roles. Those are distinctions. Those are separations. Those are boundaries that God has made. When we, dis, when we destroy those boundaries or obscure those boundaries, we move towards chaos and disorder and formlessness. And it's the same way in society. It's the same way in the church. And in the church, God has given gifts within the church. And He determines that it's important that those gifts and those distinctions be maintained and cultivated and celebrated in the church. And when we ignore those distinctions and when we ignore and, and diminish the importance of the gifts within the church, what happens within the church? You tend to have chaos and disorder. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about gifts and, and, and the importance of gifts. And he says, because, and he's referring specifically to the church, he says, because our God is a God of order, as he is in all the churches of the saints. And so this whole idea of separation and distinction is a vital principle of creation. It's not an arbitrary decision that we've made or that society's made. Rick. Would you like to elaborate? Setting up distinctions that God did not set up, mm -hmm. or ignoring the distinctions yes. that God did. 
Yes. And that, that probably, I mean, I, you say things each week, I've never really thought about it. But that's one that, yeah. that I'll think about a lot. Yeah. Because I think that addresses. Yes. It really, is a, it really is a road, isn't it? With a ditch on either side. And we can fall in the ditch of making boundaries and limitations. Racism is an example. Boundaries and limitations that God does not make. Or we can fall in the other ditch and ignore the boundaries and the limitations that He has made. And those things are important. Okay, well... <clears throat> briefly then, just let me... Uh, emphasize one other thing and then next week we'll go on to the creation of man. The point of this passage, the reason Moses wrote it, is to emphasize that God is God and beside Him there is no other. And so just to reiterate what I've already said, to restate what I've already said, is that any time we diminish or we dilute what this passage is really saying. Now, I think there's room for us to discuss and debate issues, and I mentioned one that comes up in, uh, regarding verse 4, we did, or for the fourth day, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it. But there are, there are legitimate issues of question. But be careful about allowing yourself to diminish the force of this passage or to diminish what this passage is really telling us, that God, by the decree of His Word, brought into existence, out of nothing, everything which exists. And God made the order of the universe. And God made the order of creation. And He said that it was good. And any time we diminish that message of Genesis chapter 1, we are walking on a ledge close to idolatry. And that's what we need to keep in mind. That God created the heavens and the earth. And whether whether you think He did it in six 24-hour periods or you think He took a little longer to do it, that's one thing. But to say that it's an accident of natural selection is idolatry. Or to suggest that, that, that it was not by the decree of God, specific decree of God who not only created things but gave them all of their order and all of their boundaries and all of their distinctions is to toy with idolatry. This is a very important passage for us to believe. Okay? Next week we'll go on and we'll talk about this fantastic creation of man. Okay.